Welcome to the Yogi MD Podcast. It's Nadine, yoga teacher, health coach, and retired doctor, here to bring you and your body together, not in sickness, but in health. Thanks for taking this time for yourself. Long ago, a little girl, afraid to make mistakes, dreamed of becoming a doctor. As a young woman, she struggled to manage her frustration. But her curiosity gave her courage to achieve her dream. And because she practiced being more curious, she got to meet the one and only Natalie Nixon, founder of Figure Eight Thinking, and author of one of her favorite books, The Creativity Leap. In this episode, Natalie shows us how to make curiosity a verb at every life stage and much more. I'm going to start with the sentence. I'm obsessed with it. And it's one of the main reasons why I wanted to talk to you about this book. You talk about inquiry curiosity. And you say, inquiry is the root of wisdom and the precursor of empathy. That is just poetry to my ears, Natalie. Oh, I'm I'm glad to hear that. So Socrates talked about how wonder is the root of knowledge. And wonder is, is about inquiry, observing differently, starting to explore with new questions. And part of, as you know, my background is quite loopy. It's a background in anthropology and fashion, and it's also steeped in design thinking, which, you know, I consider design thinking a problem-solving process. It's 50% qualitative research, and it's 50% the application of design principles like prototyping and visualizing data. So in the world and work of design thinking, there's a lot of jargon and there's a lot of discussion about empathy, empathy, empathy. You know, empathize with your customers, understand their experience of your products and services from their perspective. And it was in the process of writing this book that I realized we're actually kind of jumping the gun when we t- when we just talk about empathy, 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 especially in the design thinking and human-centered innovation world of work. We actually need to pause and take a step back. I discovered and start with curiosity because it was as I was trying to unpack the role of curiosity and inquiry in the creative and creative work in and in the creative process, I actually realized that um, before you can empathize with anybody, you have to be curious. You have to wonder, why do they sit over there and not over here? Why do they do it that way and not our way? And um, asking questions requires humility. It requires a a level of of self-reflexiveness to understand that You know, I don't have all the answers and the way that I go about doing things may not be the best way. So that's that's why I believe that the precursor to empathy is curiosity. Beautiful. 
and inquiry. So your book is entitled The Creativity Leap, Unleash Curiosity, Improvisation, and Intuition at Work. But what I really liked about the book and what I took away from it is that it's not just applicable to a work situation, it's applicable to your personal life. And I wanted to pick your brain about being this creative and curious person at every stage in life. One of my least favorite phrases lurking out there as we age, it's so disrespectful, is you can't teach an old dog new tricks. I (laughs) despise that. And it's one of the reasons why I love doing my podcast and talking to people like you. We can evolve with time. And I wanted to talk to you about how to remain creative and curious as we age. Yeah. So I agree with you. I don't like that phrase either. I don't agree with it that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Maybe dogs you can't, but people I think (laughs) can. And just as an example, you and I are are speaking in um, November of 2020 and tomorrow November 14th is my mother's 81st birthday. And this is a woman who, when she turned 50, she started to learn to play the cello (laughs) and she still plays. And um, she's always been an incredible role model to me of always be learning. She, she raised us with a, one of her many mantras was that all learning is interconnected. There's nothing that you have done or experienced they can't build or be additive to uh, whatever you're focused on now. So, so during the days when I was waiting tables or Kate, I actually wasn't a very good waitress. It was the first and hopefully last job I've all, <laughs> ever been fired from. I was uh, 17, needed to make money that first summer before college. I was not a good waitress, but I ended up doing a lot of catering work. Catering taught me so much about etiquette. I understood people who did have it and people who didn't. It's, it taught me a lot about project management it taught me a lot about nutrition, et cetera, et cetera. So my mother is a great example of being open to learning at whatever stage we're in. And I just marvel at the fact that she didn't choose an instrument where, you know, like the piano, where you can easily see where finger placement should be. You know, the cello is similar to the trombone, where I don't know how people figure out how they're getting <laughs> the note. So uh, to always be open to learning, to put yourself in a position to learning is one way to do that. And I, I, I have also discovered that, you know, the, the, the writing of the Creativity Leap was really an outgrowth of my consulting practice for companies and organizations and helping them to get to more transformative business results by applying creativity, by applying foresight. And I also realized, and that's why each chapter ends with a creativity leap tip for an individual as well as for an organization, that these principles, these lessons are super valuable for individuals, which led me to um, recently, I launched my first uh, online creativity course. And it's actually called Your Creativity Leap. And I spelled out the words, the letters in the word leap um, to indicate the four milestones in this in this program. Mm. And it's about leveraging all that you've done. It's about envisioning an incredibly audacious future. 
It's then about acting through asking, asking for help, asking for advice, which believe it or not, is I have found to be a really important step to gain perspective on the way I have always done things. It requires humility to ask for help. It is one of those first action steps to help you prioritize about what's my, what might my next step be. And the P is to prototype, to experiment with what this future creativity leap in your world and your work might look like. Can you break down because you did in the book, but I would love for my listeners to hear it here as a reinforcement, what you mean by the creativity leap, your introduction was just brilliant in breaking all of that down. Oh, thank you. So I talked about, I think on page one, I just asked the question, what, what does it take to make a leap? What does it mean to leap? And I talked about how it requires having vision. You must have your eyes set on something that's way beyond arm's length reach. And it's something not so far from the future that you can't see it, but it's far enough out that you can't just walk towards it. You can't just kind of skip over to it. Mm -hmm. You actually need this this um, kinesthetic energizing force to leap. Uh, this, the other thing I pointed out and, and answered my own question about what does it take to make a leap is that you've got to identify some sort of barrier. There must be some barrier for, between you and it um, to scale. Um, and that again, is going to require this enormous amount of energy and, you know, just the recognition that it's impossible to leap backward. We can fall backward, but we can only leap ahead, we can leap forward. And then I'm referencing this as I'm explaining this, but this kinesthetic emotion, it requires mm -hmm. action. And even in this group coaching course, it's about thinking and doing, thinking and acting. And both are really necessary. It's important to reflect back. It's important to do kind of a personal excavation. It's important to visualize and it's important to do because that's how we build some people call it a muscle memory for this sort of, of work. I call it a sentient intelligence to kind of brain feelings in order to move forward differently. How do you talk to the lizard brain, our amygdala, especially as it gets stronger as we get older and maybe have the tendency to be more conservative and more careful, especially from cultural anti-aging cues that say you need to settle down and just be safe and just go sit in a corner. How do we talk to ourselves and say it's still okay to take chances and take leaps forever? Well, the way my reptilian uh, brain shows up is often in uh, the naysayer, uh, the, the fearful version of, of myself. So, for example, writing the Creativity Leap last summer, summer of 2019, was a real exercise in um, battling my own insecurities and fear. So here's, here's what I mean by that. There is the mini me that sat on my shoulder as I would write, it would say, um, that's so stupid. Why would you say that? Someone's already thought of that. No one's going to read that. You know, all of those mm. voices. Mm. And there was the mini me that I had to keep propping up on my shoulder, which was saying, 
wow, that's so cool. That's so interesting. Tell me more. Then what happens, right? So part of what's required is to acknowledge that we have both sides working. And, and sometimes, you know, that, that uh, negative Nancy, uh, <laughs> mini me, can be helpful to kind of dial ourselves back, to get a little perspective, to check ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not to say that you totally discount it, but we do need to exercise a conscious effort to uh, talk to ourselves differently, to um, interrupt the story we've been telling ourselves, right? You actually get to tell a different story, but you first must be conscientious of what is the story I've been telling myself, even noticing when those doubters in yourself start to creep up. And when you can take inventory of all that you've done, the mistakes, the problematic uh, choices you've made, as well as the gains and the wins. I, I in, in this course, I talk about how our, our pains plus our gains are actually our assets. It's not just your gains that are your assets. We all know, honestly, that it's only when we've really made major fails, when we really miss the mark, that's when we learn. That's when we realize, okay, not going to do that again. How else might I do this differently? So it's super important to value those painful solitary, um, hard knocks experiences and chapters of our lives. So what I'm hearing there too, is that you need to allow yourself some space, some self-compassion and in the willingness to cultivate more self-awareness in order to listen to those voices, to listen to the ones that are encouraging you to do something, and also the one that's warning you that might have a good message, but might be overdoing it. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, this work of making a creativity leap of building creativity as a competency in your life and your work is a mind trip. (laughs) It really, it's a serious mind trip. And so the creative, I've made two major professional creativity leaps in my life thus far, one in my late twenties and one three years ago. And the one three years ago, I left a 16 year career in academia to become a full-time entrepreneur. And I had to start to exercise my mind. If I had to start reading very different types of books, I had to listen, make sure I was exercising regularly. I had to make sure I was listening mm. to certain types of music. Mm. I had to make sure I, I was allowing myself to have certain kinds of conversations because you really feel like you're on this precipice. You are on a precipice mm-hmm. as you are energizing yourself to, to make a leap. And uh, I love the work of Esther Perel. I have a girl crush on Esther Perel. She's just genius. And I listen to her podcast and she has all these marvelous things that she says in the midst of all this other great advice. And she's one, some of the things I've noted that she has said are things like, are you ready to have a revolution with your mind? And it's mm. so apt. 
You have mm. to have a revolution with your mind. Mm. The other thing that she, that, that she said in the flurry of brilliance, that I, I, that I was like, oh, this is super relevant to my work, is she, she made a comment about how the opposite, the opposite of being creative is being reactionary. I was like, man, mic drop. That's, that's so true, right? When we are creative, we are about the work of producing, and we are about the work of like gathering all that we've done so that we can uh, synthesize it and remix it and move forward and keep it moving. And when we are reactionary, we're still in this mode of woulda, shoulda, coulda. We're still in this mode of copy paste. We're still in this mode of not really identifying and valuing um, what's new. And what's new and novel is rarely something that is totally outlandishly, radically different than what's ever done before. You know, there's, there's a chapter in my book where I talk about how there's nothing new under the sun. It's all about the remix. And I also love, I'm taking, um, my husband gifted me a year subscription to the masterclass for Mother's Day. And um, I've been listening to the lessons from Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx. And, you know, she admits, I cut off the bottom of some pantyhose, you know, and my thing is, yes, she cut off the bottom of some pantyhose. And some people will say, oh, I could have done that. But she didn't. But they didn't. You didn't, right? And you didn't spend the time and sweat equity mm-hmm. and mind trippiness of getting your head right to say, what, who's a yarn engineer who I could work with who could figure out the, just the right construction um, and structure for a woman's body. Who? What are some retailers I could talk to and, and get some feedback about how customers, what, what's working for customers, what's not? Who, am I actually going to dare to leave my job of selling fax machines, which is what she was doing, to do this other work? And she even says at one point in her masterclass, she said, at one point I looked at my life and I was like, what movie am I in? This is not the movie I should be in. I need to hire another producer. So that's what I mean when I talk about the mind trip that we must engage in when we're making these creativity leaps. Why are creativity and productivity not necessarily opposing concepts? Can you talk to us about that and dive into wonder and rigor? Yes. So... Being creative, it's an act of formulating, designing, building. And so I actually am, I'm, I'm, I'm playing around with this with some clients about, especially, you know, corporate organizational clients, of forming new KPIs. You know, in corporate America, we talk about key performance indicators and our key performance indicators typically are, they're really based on an industrial model of production. Yes. Of getting out as many widgets as possible. And that doesn't make sense anymore, especially now that artificial intelligence, robotics, et cetera, are replacing tasks. The good news there, I think, is that there's more room for the human to show up. We, we really have an opportunity to define KPIs very differently. I like to see us define K- KPIs in terms of how much wonder and rigor we introduce into a process. And since you asked, you know, I think about wonder as awe and audacity Mm -hmm. and asking really big blue sky, what if questions, Mm -hmm. um, and also pausing, 
which we're not always very good at. And I think about rigor as discipline and time on task and showing up over and over and over again, which is what my background in dance taught me. I never Mm -hmm. became a professional dancer, but the audition process, man, it tells you, it it teaches you how to show up repeatedly and over and over and over again. And that is priceless. And the rigor also is very solitary work. It's not too sexy. And it's an essential component of creativity. You know, I think we've mystified creativity, yes. as if, right? As if it's only these select few who are good at it, who get to do that. And especially we lump it, ghettoize it among artists, which is not fair to artists. They're just really excellent at wrestling with the ambiguity of process. But it behooves all of us to engage in the wonder and the rigor. Hmm. You've touched upon this a little bit with telling us a little bit about your life, being a professor, being in design. You've talked about your parents a little bit. What I love about your story from what I read in your book and what you've talked about thus far is that curiosity is a noun, but curiosity is a verb. You have made curiosity a verb. It reminded me of this quote in James Clear's, uh, I'm not going to quote it, I'm going to, I'm not going to get it right, but it was a concept in James Clear's Atomic Habits, where he says that if you identify yourself as whatever you'd like to become, say, I identify myself as a healthy person, then that means I behave as a healthy person. So that means I make choices based on being that healthy person. And even if I don't feel like going to exercise, I go, well, but I'm a healthy person. So whether Mm -hmm. I like it or not, I'm going to do the work and go exercise right now. And to me, you've made that identity of curiosity, but also you practice curiosity. Please, Natalie, can you tell us how have how do you cultivate that? So I really loved how you're, you know, capturing his, his concept about, you know, shifts in mindset lead to shifts in behaviors, which lead to, we we begin to normalize them eventually. It it leads to, you know, not permanent change. I guess that's an oxymoron, but, but to change. And yeah, I I agree. I, I, I like that. Curiosity is a verb and, Um, You know, Ian Leslie, who wrote a book called Curious, he explained so well that the the definition of curiosity is that it is the product of an information gap. You need to know just a little Mm. bit about Mm. something to be curious, right? You need need to have some sort of bait. We see this in toddlers, right? They, They get a little sense of something, and then that makes them more curious to go explore to understand more. And the way um, that, you know, it's funny as you're asked, as you ask that question, I, I'm thinking myself as a, as a little kid and consistently when my parents would take us out for a meal, I was the kid who would turn around in the, in the seat in the booth and I'd be looking at other people. They come say, Natalie, turn around. Natalie, stop staring. Don't, don't stare at people like that. But I, and my mother tells this story and I was probably like, just to start walking. 
and they were in a hotel lobby and there were a group of Asian people in a circle, faces I had not seen before. And she, she thought she had lost me. And I was in the middle of the circle, just looking <laughs> around at them and just being part of them. And so I, I, I jokingly say that studying something like cultural anthropology gave me permission it legitimized my uh, proclivity to be nosy <laughs> and to, um, to uh, want to understand more about people. But that's what I love about anthropology is that it's all about the work of asking questions differently, of framing new questions. Mm-hmm. And um, so part of what has helped me to make curiosity a verb is just that formal educational training in anthropology to seek out others who are different from me. And also, frankly, it equips, it equipped me to also understand my own culture better. I, I mean, I, I studied cultural anthropology undergrad. I ended up doing my undergraduate thesis on black women's hair culture. It totally helped me to understand, well, why, why, why is this such a big deal for us? What is that about? What are the rituals around? Mm. What's the language around? What are the artifacts and all this sort of thing? The other way I have found, again, it's kind of going back to an earlier point about my mom, is that, you know, I I have this expression, become a clumsy student of something. That's super helpful in making us curious. And so right now I'm a clumsy student of pickling vegetables, um, I'm a clumsy student of social ballroom dance, of the tango and the foxtrot, and it ends up igniting curiosity on steroids because you you must problem solve. You must problem solve in the moment. You must, if, if, if your instructor or your partner doesn't understand what you just asked, you have to figure out how to say it, ask it a different way. Yeah. Um, you seek out your teachers in all sorts of different places. And it just is this wonderful snowball effect of of expanding your knowledge and expanding your frame of reference. But you also traveled a lot. Yes, I have. (laughs) That's also, for me, I'll say personally, that's been a very important part of my children's education. My husband and I really agreed that it's not a good idea to just stay in one place and be surrounded by people that think like you, people that look like you, because then you don't really push yourself or grow or learn as much as you can. So traveling has been very important part, getting out of the country and going to different places and looking at different cultures and maybe thinking about why other people do and live, do the things they do and live the way they do. And what can I learn from that? What can I take away? What are the possibilities that I can open up for myself by being this type of curious learned person. How has travel expanded your curiosity? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. And and thank you for bringing that up because travel is, it, it, it really is a passport to building your curiosity muscle. And it has this paradoxical function of you end up carrying around a humongous magnifying mirror, right? When we travel, I don't know about you, but I've lived now in like four different continents, seven different countries. And 
my Americanness bumps up into me <laughs> very forcefully. I, 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 I see the ways it, it helps me to question my norms. It helps mm. me to, I love people watching. I mean, there's nothing like being in a, in a different city, a different town, being able to, you know, in a, in a train station, shoot, I live in Philly and I could be at Penn station in, in Manhattan pre COVID, especially, uh, or Grand Central Station and just while away an entire hour, just people watching. So we don't, we don't even have to spend a lot of money to travel, right? Mm-hmm. We can, we can, if you live in a suburb, go into the city, if you live in the city, go into the country and, that exploration, that foray is a, is a, is a microcosm of travel that will do wonders Mm. to refresh you, Mm. to peak new perspective and and interests. Yes, absolutely. Travel is essential. One of the people I interviewed for the Creativity Leap is the DJ King Britt. And King is from Philly. He's now a professor of electronic music at, at, um, I think in San Diego and he, we were, ta- we were had a, having a lot of conversations about intuition. And he talked about how travel also always peaks his intuition because you really are required to lean much more on that sixth sense. Um, should I go left here? Should I go mm. right? Did that person I just asked for instructions say, it's the restaurant with the red sign that will be my, my landmark or the restaurant with the blue sign? And so you, you have to... Um, you build what I call the three eyes, and the three eyes are inquiry, intuition, and improvisation. Those are the mechanisms that we can use to exercise creativity, and travel helps us do that in spades. I love that, and you opened another door for me in terms of traveling, not physically, but you can you travel in books. You travel yes. by reading books that you would not normally read a foreign material, something you'd never pick up or think, oh, this doesn't apply to me. You can travel. I travel a lot by going to museums because you can travel through time. You can travel to different cultures and learn so much. That's just gorgeous. Thank you for sharing that. Well, um, I kind of just build on your point. I love, I love what you're saying as well, because another way to build empathy is to read fiction. Because when we read fiction, we are transported to a different gender, to a different geography, a different time, a different, totally different culture. We get to inhabit that person's world and see things through that lens. You know, maybe that's one of the reasons I love, I fancy myself a Bond girl and I love uh, spy thrillers. I get to inhabit the, the body of a really audacious alpha male <laughs> and, 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 and all the things that, that, that they uh, go through and there's, and their espionage work, but um, fiction before it's again, before it's building empathy, it's helping us to be more curious, mm. which helps us to be empathic. But no, but I love those examples, going to a gallery, a museum, um, reading a play, listening to an album, mm-hmm. that kind of soundscape, right? Mm-hmm. That also helps us to travel. Absolutely. Branching out and listening to different types of music. I mean, I was so impressed when you said that your mom picked up the cello at 50, because I thought I, I was a late bloomer. I started drumming at 42. So that's oh, fantastic. I love that. I, I nice. love that. And it was because of that, I wanted to find my voice in yeah. another way.
This is a concept I don't think we talk enough about. We talk about IQ plenty. Everybody knows what an IQ is. But emotional quotient and creativity quotient? Wow. Can you yeah. just touch upon those a little bit? Well, yeah, exactly. Because we're always, we, we err on the side of rationale and IQ and intelligence, which are important. Mm-hmm. We've only recently started talking about the value of what we call EQ, this emotional mm-hmm. intelligence. Um, but we also need, especially now in these times, need to really build what I call CQ and our creativity quotient because it is a competency, because it is something that we as humans are hardwired uh, to lead with and to have. And, and you, can, you can better explain this than can I because you're, you're an MD, but I um, understand that, you know, we all, every single person we have hardwired in us this human antenna to help us with our intuition. We have the vagus nerve, right? Which is the only nerve that's extending from our cranium mm-hmm. down through our heart into our gut. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is another way that we are, to me, the signals we are hardwired to build this CQ, this creative quotient that is going to be amplified even more by applying curiosity, intuition, imp- improvisation. And the challenge that I see, even at the beginning of the COVID-19 quarantine, where things kind of, it was kind of like, you know, when all, if you've ever been in an office building or apartment building and, and if the uh, power shuts off, it's like, zoom, <laughs> right? You, you just hear that sound like, oh, and it's like really quiet and still. People didn't know what to do with themselves mm-hmm. at the beginning of March in the United States. We were, we were given permission to sit ourselves down mm-hmm to potentially redesign our relationship with time, to redesign our relationship with ourselves, redesign with, with others. And some of us have these existential moments and it's like, okay, what else might I do? How else might I work now? And others were a little freaked out, but uh, net net um, right now in this moment, we've got to exercise our creative quotient our creativity quotient. It's the only way we're going to see our way out of these very complex, challenging times. We're not going to be able to resolve what I call the triple pandemic of COVID-19, systemic racism, and the unsustainability of our earth with a linear Gantt chart. We we will be frustrated really quickly. Mm -hmm. A lot of courage and bravery to do those things, though. Yes. Natalie, do you have a question for me? Yes. Um, so I noticed your drums behind you. And not only do I fancy myself a Bond girl, but I one of my dream jobs is to be Lenny Kravitz. <laughs> yeah. And I've just discovered the phenomenal, uh, discovered for me, the phenomenal uh, Zulu drummer girl, Nandi Chinawith, I think her name is. Hmm. Why did you decide, what inspired you to pick the drums? I love that. I played the piano as a little girl and I hated it. <laughs> hated it. Because Why it was, did you hate it? Because it was very academic. It was, briefly, my history being one of being first generation born American to Haitian immigrants. My parents are not college educated, but they came here because they wanted to start a family and give us all opportunity. And education for Haitian culture is is 
big education and family. And so no one told me to go do anything. They just said, go get your education. I picked doctoring. And so it was very, and I, and I, put myself into a mold of being, I have to be very intellectual. So I approached my life for 40 years with that lens. It has to be all rigor, no wonder. So I uh, navigated piano that way. And it didn't help that the teacher was very authoritarian. She just screamed at us every week. (laughs) She did. She just screamed at us. And I wasn't encouraged to, well, maybe I'm making mistakes or I need to change my whatever. I wasn't playful. So as soon as I could stop playing piano, I stopped and I know I haven't touched the keyboard ever since I was 13. But I love music. It's one of the reasons I love your book, because you talk about jazz so much. I'm not so much a jazz aficionado, but I just love music. And so I knew that I wanted, I, I had to find my voice there some way. It's a very silly story. But when my girls were little, I can't believe I'm sharing this. Oh my goodness. We went, I took them, I used to take them to see movies a lot. And we went to see the movie Hop. It was a terrible movie. Terrible. Okay. <laughs> it was animated, part animated, part human. The bunny <laughs> played a drum solo. And I remember watching this cartoon as a grown woman. And I'm going, I have to do that. Wow. And so... I was 42 at the time. Yeah. And I walked into this music studio and it's these types of things are normally parents bringing their kids in there. Yes. And I walked in embarrassed and I said, I I, I got to do this. And so I started taking drum lessons and I can't seem to stop. I I love it. I love it. Who's your favorite drummer? Like who are your like drummer mentors? Uh, Nate Smith. Nate Smith. Okay. Nate Smith. I love it. And I love it as a grown woman because it used to be um, Stuart Copeland because of the police. I love the police, but it's Nate Smith because Nate Smith with his drumming is telling you who he is. Mm. He is showing he's unapologetically himself. He's strong. He's confident. He makes a statement. He made this solo album that I can't stop listening to. Pocket Change. Oh, my goodness. I've just listened to it over and over and over again. And I learn more about the man through his drumming every time I listen to a song. It's like my coach recently said to me, Nadine, it's not about the drumming. It's about Nadine becoming a better Nadine through drumming. I'm not a drummer. I would love to learn to play the drums. I haven't made the steps yet, but I went to go hear this phenom of a drum. I'm so sorry. He's a jazz drummer. It was at Harvard and the auditorium was like practically empty. And he is, at this time, he was probably... I think it was in his eighties and it was a solo show and you see the person makes the introduction and you see an elderly black man kind of slowly walk over to this drum set that was in spotlight. And he sits on the, he sits on the, the, the drum stool. He like positions himself. He picks up the sticks and that man 
became a 35-year-old man. (laughs) His body, his physicality, the sounds of it, 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 he transformed in front of, it was like he was not that same person who had Mm -hmm. slowly made Mm -hmm. his way to the drums. He transformed, he became one with those drums. It was it was amazing. Well, and that I, I love that example because what you're saying to me is the spirituality of it. And for me, drumming is spiritual. Yes. It's a spiritual quest. Absolutely. Absolutely. This has been lovely. I, I so appreciate connecting with you. I have one last question. What is your personal definition of what it means to be healthy? Oh, um, to be healthy is to be humming. It's to be in balance. It's flow. My mind, my heart, and my physical body is good. What, what is that where we learned in biology? It's, it's uh, not osmosis. It's, it's um, homeostasis. Homeostasis. It's that equilibrium. It's that kind of flow of where there's, there's no tension. There's no tightness. It's fluid. That is health for me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I love this. And yes, I know it's a year early, but like I said, <laughs> Thank you. I love the questions. I loved how conversational this was. Thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure to have met you. Thank you. And now it's time for the Mindful Minute. Find a comfortable and quiet place to sit. Lengthen your spine. Keep your feet flat on the floor and your shoulders stacked over your hips. Now notice your breathing, the gentle rise and fall of your inhale and exhale respectively from belly to collarbones and collarbones to belly. Think back to a time when you chose to be curious in a difficult situation. As you recall that time, observe your breathing. Now let's smooth it out, inhaling to a count of four seconds and exhaling to a count of seven seconds. Come back to the present moment. Open your eyes and notice how you feel. Dear wise women, thank you for growing our community. Keep using your wisdom and emotional intelligence to share this episode with someone in your social circle who will benefit from hearing it. Your grandma and your mom need yoga. Maybe you need yoga too. I teach yoga to wise women. I believe in empowering and educating wise women to thrive on their terms at every stage of life. 
Let's hear what a wise woman has to say. And I could not at this point give up yoga because it really guides me and my, my muscles, my body movements in a way that it just hasn't, I've never been able to do before. So thank you, Nadine. To learn more, connect with me at yogimd.net. And finally, podcast theme music is by my niece, Maya Bishop, on vocals. My daughter, Lizzie Kelly, on guitar and bass. Yours truly, on percussion. And produced by Tim Buell. And original music for The Transitions by Charles Wilson, also known as Black Buck. Thanks for being here. See you next time.